As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that your joy may remain, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Jesus goes, there's no greater love. If you want to know the height, how God describes and quantifies the highest expression of love, he says it's a laid down life. And consider the fact that what Jesus is teaching, he's about to gruesomely illustrate over the course of two days. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. And Jesus says, this is the difference between a servant and a son. This is the difference between a servant and a friend. See, a servant just does what he's told. You know, the Old Testament a competitor to the name of Yahweh was the name Baal. And that name actually means master. Baal does. Baal does that word, yeah, it means master. And so it was, are you going to serve Yahweh, the great I am, the I am that I am, the uncreated God, or are you going to serve master? And, uh, and he says here, I'm not looking for those who are servants. I'm looking for those who are friends and the distinguisher between the friend and the servant the servant obeys commands, just does what he's told. The servant actually understands the plans. of the. Uh, I'm sorry, a, a friend is one who understands the plans and intentions of the one that's leading and guiding him. That component of intimacy is completely lacking from a master-servant relationship. But in a friendship... The whole fabric of the relationship is built on intimacy. Jesus calls you friends because the things that the Father spoke to him, he made known to you. He's actually invited you into the conversation of the Trinity. The most intimate setting, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dialoguing with one another. And Jesus comes out of that conversation and he, he says to all humanity through the Gospels and by the Spirit, he says, this is who God is. And he says, come and ask me about it. Come and join yourself to me and learn about who the Father is. Because if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And I'm going to disclose myself to you. And I'm going to disclose my Father to you. And I'm going to do it by my Spirit. And I'm actually going to bring you into a relationship where you actually one day, Revelation, says to Revelation chapter 2 talks about how those who overcome will sit on his throne with him. That almost sounds blasphemous, but guys, it's a scripture. Those who overcome, they will sit on my throne with me. We are co-heirs with Christ. And he desires that we would rule and reign with him as a bride. You're not just a servant. He's called you his friend. In 2 John 3.29, this is John the Baptist, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore his joy, this joy of mine, is fulfilled. 
See, John would endure a lot of hardship for the sake of righteousness. Because of his loyalty to God and because of his loyalty to his friend, Jesus. But he says in this passage, when his ministry is diminishing and the crowds are leaving him, and it was probably likely that popular support that kept him insulated from being thrown in prison. So not only are the crowds leaving and his ministry is diminishing, but the fact that the crowds leave likely makes him more vulnerable to uh, backlash from his political adversaries who who upset through his righteous through his righteous preaching against sin. But John, in the midst of that, he says, "When I hear the bridegroom's voice, it causes me joy. When I hear my friend receiving what he ought to receive, it produces joy in my heart." And that's the kind of friend we want to be. So we are called to be friends of the bridegroom. He himself invited his disciples into this relationship. But what does it mean to be his friend? What are some of the qualities that characterize true friendship with Jesus? What is Jesus looking for in his friends? So let's go to point one. Jesus is looking for friends who are loyal to him. James 2.23, it says, This scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of of God. I love Abraham, the one who's the father of our faith, the one who we look to and say, we are in the likeness of the faith of Abraham, right? See, what Abraham believed was first to believe when God said there would be a, a seed from the barren womb of his wife, and that that seed would cause him to grow into a nation, and that nation, from that nation, there would be a blessing to many nations. They call that the proto-evangelium which is the pre, the, is the most, one of the most basic expressions of the gospel, that there would be a man, from the man would come a child, from that child would come a nation, and from that nation there would be a blessing to all nations of the earth from that people. And that's the, the, in a nutshell the plan of God. And so what God did with this man is he, um, he counted it righteousness to him when he believed on the promise of a son. And then he took that son, and as a prophetic expression of the, as a foreshadowing of the ultimate son and the ultimate sacrifice, he had to, he had his faith tested by offering that son up. And Romans tells us so that he was confident that God could bring forth life from death, and so he was willing to do that. His only son, the sole inheritor of all the promises God had given, he was willing to offer that back to God without equivocation. See, ultimately, that test was, Abraham, are you going to be loyal to the great promises I've given you, or are you going to be loyal to me as God? Is your faith, is your faith rooted in what you've seen and what you've experienced, or is your faith rooted, and what I mean is, is it, you know, he saw a promise from God answered. And how many of you know sometimes when you see an answer, it's easy to put your confidence in the answer instead of continuing to maintain confidence in God? Amen. See, we have faith until we see that thing for which we've had, for which we've been believing, and then it comes. And how many of you know so often, even though God's the one who gave it to you, you know, God gives you a house, so say for example, right? God gave me a house, glory to God. But now we're all in anxiety whether the bills are going to get paid. <laughs> And we start to put confidence 
what we began in the faith in faith, we actually begin to, you know, we grow once we receive the promise of that, sometimes we waver in our faith, which Abraham had plenty of wavering. But ultimately it was because of that loyalty that at Mount Moriah he was willing to take the knife and plunge it into the son, the son of promise, the child of promise, and willing to sacrifice that child in, in obedience to God, that God said, You're loyal to me, Abraham. Your faith is ultimately about loyalty to me, and you are friends to me. And God shared his plans with Abraham. He actually says, you know, when, when the angels that are coming to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, he, he, he's actually there, like Jesus is likely the one who's, who's there um, having that conversation in pre-incarnate form. And, um, and he says, Will I not, should I not make known to Abraham the things which I'm going to do? Because Abraham was the one. Because Abraham was his friend. James 4.4 4, Adulteresses and adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? He's talking to believers there. And he's saying, believers, the Holy Spirit is inside you, but the Holy Spirit isn't just satisfied with a part of you. And he's going, any compromise that's in your life, it, it, if, you, if you yield to compromise and embrace compromise, he goes, ultimately, that compromise will bring you into direct contradiction with the God you claim to serve. And he goes, if you decide to embrace the ways of the world, immorality, perversion, murder, whatever it might be, to embrace the ways of the world, then that puts you in conflict with God. And he goes, the Holy Spirit's not going to tolerate that. He's going to convict you and work on you and break you down. The Spirit dwells jealously for us. And he doesn't want to share us with any, any other idols. Remember I drew the picture of how the, um, the temple is a illustration of our inner being, right? See, the Holy Spirit wants to fill and overflow that innermost being. And he doesn't want any part of us to be shared with any idols. John 19, 12. Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. So I was reading through all the verses that had the phrase friend and friendship in it, and I came to this one. And it's actually the opposite of what Jesus is looking for. It's, uh, you know, First John, it says, um, he came and he showed himself to those who should have known him. Um, he came and made himself known in John chapter 1, excuse me. It says he, uh, he went to those who should have most known him, but, um, but they rejected him. And he was like light in the darkness. And here we see that the ultimate expression of what John was writing about in chapter 1, this group of, of people that had been given the covenant promises of Abraham and Moses and should have most recognized that this was God in the flesh seeking friendship and relationship with men. And instead, the Jewish leaders, they say, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. And those Jewish leaders in that day, they chose friendship with Caesar over friendship with God. They chose allegiance to their taskmasters over allegiance to Jesus. 
and it was just striking me, it was grieving me when I first read this. This idea that they would actually cry out, there's God in the flesh in an expression of love, making himself fully, fully vulnerable to them. Jesus knows, he says elsewhere, you know, that, that he could have called down 12 legions of angels. He stays Peter's hand and says, Peter, those who live by the sword, they die by the sword, don't go chopping servant's ears off. Servant chops off Malchus's ear there in the garden. And he says, do you not know that if I desired it, I could call down 12 legions. Legions roughly a thousand soldiers or so. So 12,000 angels. Because I could call down 12,000 angels right now. And it only takes one to defeat Yeah, right. 12,000 angels. But Jesus, he goes through the suffering because he knows ultimately this is for the salvation of humanity. And his submission is an expression of love to the Father, but it's an invitation to us to friendship. And you know what that angry mob said? He said, no, we choose Caesar. We want to be friends to Caesar instead of friends of God. And we may be thinking to ourselves, how could they do that? Oh, adulterers and adulteresses. That same thing that the Jews did. Jesus in the flesh. Well, now we know Jesus by the Spirit. And there are many believers that I've known. There was a guy that I worked at camp with. He actually had this intense dream. And I don't know if he ever actually fully repented. But he was smoking pot and doing a bunch of stuff they shouldn't have been doing. He was a, a co-counselor with me at this camp I worked at. And he told me about a dream that put the fear of the Lord in him. And he, was, he straightened up for about six months. But he was starting to even backslide a little more. And he had this dream. And in the dream, he said he saw Jesus on the cross. He walked up to Jesus, looked him in the face, and spit in his face. And he said he, he knew that he'd grown up as a pastor's son. He said he knew the lifestyle he was living was a dishonoring to what Jesus had sacrificed for him. You know, and it's the same spirit of, of Hebrews 10 where it says if you defile the blood of the covenant through the practice of sin, it's like trampling the blood of the Son of God in the book. He said, put the fear of the Lord in him but for probably about six months. The wickedness and deceptiveness of the human heart. We go, oh, how could you ever say, man, I'll be a friend to Caesar and I'll reject you. A man who'd done miracles. It wasn't like this guy was an unknown entity. He had made blind people in the streets of their city begin to see. Jesus had done miracles like that. And it was known to the highest leaders and officials in that city. It was known to the highest leaders, known throughout everyone in that city. The multitudes recognized this is the same crowd that had said, Hosanna, Lord, come and deliver. Blessed be the name of the one who comes in the name of the Lord. But days earlier, and now they're shouting, we want to be friends to Caesar. Crucify him. Crucify him. The Roman officials are trying to let Jesus off the hook. And the Jews, the ones who've been given the covenant promises, been given the Old Testament and the promise of Messiah coming through their nation, they're saying, we want a king after our own heart. We don't want one that's broken and humble and meek. We want a strong leader. We don't want one. We don't want a God of friendship. We want a, a king who will treat us as servants. It's the same decision that Israel made when they chose Saul. They said, we don't want God to rule over us. Give us a king. And the scripture says that uh, the scripture, the, the prophet Samuel, the Lord speaks to prophet Samuel, says, that Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me as king over them. 
And the condition of the human heart was no different a thousand years later. The condition of the human heart is no different today. But yet God, even in the midst of our continual rejection of Him, is still looking for friends. Friendship, fellowship, 1 John 1, 6. If we say we have fellowship with Him, but we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And that's fellowship one to another in the body, but that's also talking about vertical fellowship between us and the Father and us and the Son. And when we walk with fellowship with one another, the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Proverbs 22, 11. He who loves purity of heart and has grace on his lips, the King will be his friend. If you have a loyal heart to him, Second Chronicles 16, it says, The eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the earth, looking for one whose heart is fully loyal to him, that he might prove himself strong on their behalf. The Lord gave me a prophetic word a few weeks ago at Foreigner Church. He said, If you'll prove yourself loyal, I'll prove myself strong. He who loves purity of heart and has grace on his lips, the king will be his friend. Psalm 24. 3 and 4. Who may ascend the hill, Lord, or who may stand in this holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. Who can come into the holy presence of God? Clean hands and a pure heart. Not one who has given over to the worship of mammon, or sexual immorality, or any of the other idolatries that are so prevalent in our culture. The one who says, God, the idol, you know, even good God-given things can become idols. Your spouse can become an idol. Your children can become an idol. Education can be an idol. But God's looking for one who would say, it's offensive, but it's true. If we're really disciples of Jesus and we really want the fullness of God's presence in our lives, we have to love Jesus more than our spouses. We have to love Jesus more than our children. And if you want a good marriage with your spouse, you have to have a better friendship with Jesus than you do any other person in the world. And when there are no idols in your life, and when you're not pursuing friendship with the world that's enmity with God, and you're not craving after a king of this world, but you're craving after the humble king of heaven, when there's loyalty set in your heart, that's the one who can come into the presence of the Lord and enjoy His strength and His beauty. And you can actually stand in His holy place. I want to stand in the councils of the Most High. I want to stand in the holy place with God. Gaze on His beauty. Perceive Him. Know Him. Be intimate with him. Because that is the place his blood has made a way for me to enter. See, if I walk in darkness, I'm not going to have fellowship with him. Our fellowship is going to be broken because of my idolatry, because of the darkness I've embraced. But 1 John 1, 14 says, If I confess my sin and I walk in the light, 
then I will have fellowship with him. And the blood of Jesus will cleanse me of all sin. So it's not a perfect life that God's looking for that qualifies you for friendship and intimacy. But it is a desperate, hungry, fully yielded life. And from that place, God applies his blood. And he says, those hands, man, let me do a little hand inspection on here right here, Daniel. Whoa, those hands, there's some pretty defiling things that these hands have done different times in your life. But guess what? Guess what? If these are my hands, if this is my heart, I'll apply the blood to them. I'll make them clean. Amen. And we can have fellowship. Because I paid the price to justify you. You guys know what justification is? Fancy theological word, word, right? It means that the exchange of our iniquity for his righteousness. I like to tell people, give this illustration of justification. It's from a book called Search for Significance. It's so, so powerful, though. It's like there's a ledger where all the sins you've ever done, they were written on that ledger. Can you imagine some of the things that might be on your ledger? Just take a moment, think about it. What would be written on that list? Adultery, pornography, murder in your heart, anger, outbursts of anger. All the things throughout your life. And those are the those are the things you've done wrong that you owe a debt for, right? You have sinned against God. You have been an offense to Him. And you owe a debt to Him. And when it's all calculated, it's a debt that is far beyond your ability to pay. Now here walks up Jesus. Jesus has His ledger. It's all works of righteousness. No sin or transgression. Not one thing he's ever done wrong. And he's actually got credits in his account. And all you have is debits. And he goes, you want to trade? I'll take all the sin, pay all the debt on the cross. You get all the inheritance, all my righteousness. And all you have to do is give me your life. It's okay, I'm not a master, I'll call you friend. We'll walk in fellowship with each other. And the blood of my blood will be a constant response to the accusations of the enemy against your life. Hallelujah, it's a pretty good deal, huh? Yeah. Justified, sanctified, set free. He goes, this stuff I'm gonna tell you, it's gonna give you joy. It's gonna make you joyful, it's gonna make your heart happy. Do you know that there's not one thing that you've ever done in your whole life that when God looks at you, He thinks about that sin? No, really, He says in Hebrews, He says, Your sins and your lawless deeds, I remember them no more. It says when He looks at us, it says that we are holy and pleasing and above reproach in His sight. Your ledger's clean. He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. And it was not him in all of his holiness and majesty just winking at our transgression. He was paying at the cross the full price, the full 
penalty with His precious and holy blood so that you can be 100% forgiven, cleansed, and free. Hallelujah. And He says, now that I've made you clean and free and holy, come on up into my presence and be my friend. But don't walk in friendship with the world. Don't be an adulterer and adulteress. God joined you to myself. Don't you know my spirit yearns jealously in you that, he would, that I would possess all of you. I didn't shed my blood on Calvary just to get a partial deed. To get a broken covenant. I bought you to marry you. Hallelujah. I've called you friend. You're my friend. You're my friend. You're my friend. You're his friend, Josh. He loves you. You're his friend. Why did he do it for you? Because you're his friend. There's no greater love than he would lay his life down for his friend. He laid his life down for us. And, and we're not just... There's, it's, it, the word he uses. He laid his life down for us. And he said, the, one, the ones I'm doing this for, you guys are my friends. That's why I'm doing this. What kind of friend? The ones that know the heart of my Father. I'm going to make the heart of my Father known to you. What will wreck us is when we know how loyal He is to us. Oh, <laughs> how committed He is to us. In the face of intense suffering, challenge, He didn't walk away. He walked, he set his face, and he walked right through the cross of Calvary, went right into that grave, descended right into the pit of Sheol. And then glory to God, after three days, he rose again and came back. And he ascended into heaven, and one day he's going to come back for a pure and spotless bride. How's he going to prepare? He's going to wash her with the water of his word. Scripture actually says in Ephesians 5, there's this passage you can, you can just glaze right over if you don't read it carefully. It says, He Himself will present a bride. He Himself will present her in all her glory. He will present her to Himself in all her glory. He will present her to Himself in all her glory. He's going to do it, God. <laughs> The good work, the good work he's, good work he's done in you. <laughs> Ephesians five. Ephesians five, yeah. Good work he's done in you. He'll be faithful to complete. What other kinds of friends is Jesus looking for? He's looking for friends who are loyal. He's looking for friends who listen. It happened as he entered a certain village. A certain woman named Martha welcomed her into his house. She had a sister called Mary who sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. When Martha was distracted with much serving, she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care my sister has left me to serve alone? But Jesus said, no, I don't really care that she's done that. Tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. Mary has chosen that good part, and it will not be taken away from her. It's the same thing that he says back here in John 15. I'm not looking for servants. 
I'm not looking for those who make sandwiches I didn't order back in the kitchen. I'm looking for those who will sit at my feet and hear my word and have a relationship with me. And I know many people serve out of that place of intimacy and relationship with him. But he's putting clear kingdom priority on the issue of intimacy. And especially the hearing of his word. If Jesus were here right now teaching this class, anybody, everybody would be a fool to not be right here front and center <laughs> hearing what he has to say. Right? Now it's a little harder to perceive, but the reality is Jesus is in that prayer room. He's in your quiet time. He's here in this word instructing us every single day. We will just incline our heart to listen. But I got that ministry thing I got to do over here, and my kids over here, and I got to talk to them over here, and I got to do all that stuff over here. I'm trying to talk to you throughout my day. And but it's like, if I, if I really, and Jesus knows, he's, his, he's happy hearted and loves us so deeply. But his invitation is come and be at my feet. Because this is the one thing that is needed. The one thing. He goes, this is the one thing that's needed. And if you will do this, everything else in life will find its proper place. Jesus is looking for friends who listen. John 13, 25. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I've dipped it. And so Jesus, in the context of this, this is the night he's going to be betrayed. It's, he's at the Last Supper with the disciples. And, um, and it's funny because Peter knew that John shared a special relationship with Jesus because a few verses earlier, Peter encouraged, Jesus had said earlier, one of you is going to betray me. And Peter's like, John, ask him. <laughs> and see, John understood the intimacy he had with Jesus. And he leaned back on his breast. And he asked him the question that everyone else in the room was thinking. But because of it, the intimacy of relationship that he shared with him, Jesus answered John and showed him, spoke to him about who the betrayer was. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Jesus Iscariot, son of Simon. And Peter turned around and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so that's the thing I want us to make connection with between those two verses. This one who leaned on his breast that one later called himself in writing about himself the one whom Jesus loved. He identifies himself as the one who Jesus loved. Is it presumption or is it just true? I think it's just true. Tonight teaching the class, the one whom Jesus loved. <laughs> and he remembers, he recounts the specific details as the one whom Jesus loved, who leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? John distinguishes himself later, chapters later, by that episode and that incident, demonstrating that he was one who had a unique intimacy with Jesus, and that intimacy was rooted in the confidence that Jesus loved him, and a willingness to ask a question and lean in to receive the answer. I've meditated on that verse before. Can you imagine what it would have been like to actually hear the blood pumping from the heart of the Son of God in the flesh? 
Scripture is screaming to us right there, guys. The story of Mary, the story of John, the revelator, the one whom Jesus loved. Jesus is looking for those who will lean in and put their ear to his heart. And he will tell them secrets that he's not willing to tell anyone else in the room. You can tweet this. With proximity comes intimacy. Hashtag agency. The one who who Jesus loved. (laughs) With proximity comes intimacy. What does that mean? It means we actually need to draw near to him with intentionality. You can hear the worship song, feel his presence, and just go, oh, his presence feels good. Or you can recognize in that moment it's an invitation to press deeper into that place with God. That touch on your heart, that touch on your mind, that bit of revelation, all of it's an invitation to lean in. And with greater proximity, greater nearness will come increased intimacy. If you lean in, he'll tell you more. You know the number one way that I interrogate people, get them to tell tell me things about them? Please share. You lean in. (laughs) I'm listening. And if you know I'm listening, you're going to tell me something. Yeah. That was one of Bill Clinton's things. He would come closer to the people that he was speaking to um, on the podium to draw them in with intimacy. He'd always, he'd have the question asked him, and then he would walk towards the crowd. Wow. First Corinthians 2.9 I have not seen, ears not heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of a man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God that we might know the things which have been freely given to us by God. Paul's kind of explaining a few different, that's a very Pauline paragraph there. But essentially what he's saying is, there's things that the natural is not perceived. Your physical eye has never seen it. Your ear has not seen it. Has anyone here actually seen the glorious mountain of the Lord? No, right? Eye has not seen, nor ear has heard. Those things which God has prepared for those who love Him. There is... In my Father's house, there are many mansions, but none of us have actually seen the glorious inheritance, the city that we're all going to inhabit, right? Though we've not seen it, okay, though we've not seen it, God has revealed it to us by His Spirit. We actually have revelation from the Scripture, this place is real. (laughs) We have persuaded in our hearts. Heaven is real, like Zion is real. We're all going to live there one day. We believe this scripture, and it's not fairy tale of fiction to us because something has transpired in our hearts by the Spirit that tells us this is true. This is truth. It's truth I'm willing to live and die for. And Paul explains that this is God revealing to us by the Spirit, and the Spirit searches the deep things of God and articulates it to us in our inner man. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of a man, he's saying the part that knows you the best, your, your own being the best, is your spirit man. He's going, that's the part that knows you. In the same way, the spirit of God is the part that most know, deeply knows God. He goes, you've got a spirit man? God has a spirit man. 
and the things that are in the Spirit of God, no one knows except the Spirit of God. And now we've received not the Spirit of the world, but that Spirit that comes from God. And by that Spirit, we can freely, we can know the things that have been freely given to us by God. We can know all about the heavenly city. We can know all about the inexpressible love. Peter calls it the inexpressible love, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Joy and glory inexpressible. Peter breaks it down this way. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him, and you are fully persuaded of the inheritance you have by the precious faith that you've been given, and you're persuaded of that inheritance, and you rejoice. You have joy because you know you're never going to die, never going to die. I'm never going to die, never going to die. And it's not just good words to a catchy song. It is the reality in which we can live because the Spirit of God shows us eternal life. You've freely been given it. Freely given What's the point? God wants friends who listen to the depth of his being. The deep in him calling out to the deep in us. He will tell us inexpressible things by the Spirit. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Amos 3, 7, surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secrets to his servants, the prophets. God wants friends to listen. We've got 10 minutes. Uh, I have two sections. Let's see if I can get them done in 10 minutes. Jesus is looking for friends who share his sorrow and joy with. John 11, 3. It is Mary and Martha they sent for him and said, Behold, the one you love is sick. John 11, 33-35. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, the Jews came with her weeping. He groaned in his spirit was troubled. And he says, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And it says, As Jesus was going to the tomb of Lazarus, he's weeping. Now, he had said earlier, it's better that Lazarus fall asleep because, and it says he later has to tell them, they're like, well, if he's sleeping, he'll get healthy. He said, no, he's dead. dead." (laughs) Jesus fully understood that Lazarus was going to die because he was intentionally delayed. And that's how full of faith was that he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And he said, it's better for you that he dies because then you're going to see the glory of God. Right? And so he's actually walking in faith with the Father and letting his friend, the one whom he loves, die. So, but he's fully persuaded he's going to go to the tomb and raise him back from the dead. He actually says that to Martha when she comes and, uh, and she comes and says, if you had not been here, Lord, he would not have died. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that you would see um, that you would see the resurrection? You would see, if you believe me, you'll see your brother resurrected. She goes, I know that there'll be a resurrection at the end. And Jesus goes, I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection. The resurrection at the end, present, right here with you, God in the flesh. I will bring about that resurrection. I will be the one who speaks at the end of human history and everybody gets up from the dead. A voice is coming and now is when the Son of Man will speak. And those who are dead in their graves will hear and rise, some to eternal life and some to eternal condemnation, John 5. I am the resurrection. 
And Jesus says, here, let me show you. Lazarus, come forth. Father, I thank you that you always hear me. And I pray this so that those who are here would know that I'm your son whom you sent. And Jesus does this incredible miracle. But what's the point? In the midst of that whole scenario, Jesus is not detached in his emotions from what those he loves are feeling around him. He's not one bit disconnected. He's fully in it. His heart is filled with sorrow because his friends are hurting even though that sorrow is about to turn to joy. Have you guys ever been present for like a real life-changing miracle for a person? Christian has, yeah. It's one of the most awesome things. It like will give you just a whole different sensation of what it must have been like to be around Jesus. There was a woman that we prayed for in the renewal. She had Coke bottle thick glasses and she wasn't able to like see the faces of her kids um, without you know, without her glasses, and for her eye vision to clear up and to be able to see her children without these glasses and for her to weep and be like, truly healed. There's a girl that was 15 years old. She had severe fibromyalgia. She, our very first healing room, she comes to our healing rooms. We prayed for her. The family had been coming to this church, and we prayed for her so many different times. And we do our very first healing rooms, and in our healing rooms, this girl who had gone from being a star athlete on her high school basketball team to having to be the equipment girl because she couldn't physically play anymore. Lay hands on her, pray for her, and her fibromyalgia, there's pain points, different points in your body, and her 15 point, which is one of the most extreme, I think there's like maximum 16 or 17 points, so she had one of the highest intensity um, symptoms of fibromyalgia. She gets prayed for, all the symptoms leave her body, and I got to go watch her play in her varsity basketball game that next week. Amen. When you see Jesus heal someone's body and change their life, you understand, man, that joy that must have just followed that guy when he was ripping beggars up out of their begging spots and opening their blind eyes. I mean, it just must have been nuts. Like, it must have been incredible. And I want that real bad to see Jesus do that right here. <laughs> Through us, you know, but I just think a lot of them. It's like, it's like we just a fresh revelation. People will say things like, you know, I want to seek the face of God, not His hand, and kind of like these two things have to be competing, or that somehow the power of God is a distraction. And guys, if you've ever experienced a true miracle of changing a person's life, you realize God has not given us compassion and love for the hurting and the broken, and left us powerless in the face of their difficult circumstances. He's given us the mighty weapons of prayer and healing and the Holy Spirit who does gifts of miracles today. And Jesus is looking for friends that will be sorrowful at the tragedy of human brokenness and disease and sickness and oppression and poverty. And in the midst of that, they will stand in sorrow in the place of intercession and discover simultaneously the joy of releasing his kingdom. Matthew 9, 36. He looks on the multitude. He's moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. Laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. He wants friends who go out into the harvest field moved with his same heart of compassion. Matthew 26. He took Peter 
two sons of Debedi, he began to be sorrowful, deeply distressed. He said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Stay here with me now. He went a little farther, fell on his face, and prayed. Oh, my father, it's possible that this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to his disciples, found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter in temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again a second time, he went away, prayed, and said, Oh, my father, this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it. Your will be done. He came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them not, and went away again, and he prayed the third time, saying the same words. Jesus is in the depth of travail in his soul, and he just wants friends with him. What does Jesus never cease to do? He tells us he never ceases to intercede. And he's looking for those, just like he did in the garden. Just like he interceded in the garden on our behalf and faced the challenge of the cross head on. And even in the midst of the greatest time of temptation, Jesus, as a man, he longed for friendship. Do you know that Jesus is still, if you could go up to Jesus in heaven, you you couldn't just pass your hand through him. He's not some weird spirit being slash jelly, alien jellyfish. (laughs) He would be filled with light and glory, but he would also have flesh and bone. If you were physically in heaven right now, you could touch Jesus and he would feel like a person because that's, he's ascended into heaven in a physical body. He's a man at the right hand. He's a man. This is a man we're interacting with by the Spirit of God. He's a man. And he wants friends. And even though we're separated by, you know, as far as heaven is from the earth, that man, I heard Missy Edwards, she kind of said this weird thing. She was like, I think my, but it really struck me. She was like, my relationship with Jesus is like if you have like the very best friend in the whole world. And you love this friend, but they had to move away for a really long, long time. You were never going to really get to see him again. But then they took the essence of their spirit, the essence of who they were, and somehow put it inside you. So that sense of their nearness and their presence and who they are could always be felt with you at all times. That's what Jesus did for us. He left us his, his spirit, the essence of who he is. He gave us the mind of Christ so we, he would ever be near, ever close to us. And we long for that day when we would be reunited with our friend physically. But until that day comes, we get to fellowship with him spiritually. I love John 20, this is Mary Magdalene. Scripture tells us that Jesus cast seven demons out of this woman. She comes to him. I believe Mary Magdalene probably was a prostitute or she was doing something in her life that would cause her to have seven demons. And it said that she was listed among those who actually gave of her financial resources to support the ministry. Her life had been radically changed by this man and that demonic oppression had been driven out of her. And I imagine much like the demoniac who begged Jesus, you know, after being set free to come with him, she probably did something similar. 
and her life was so transformed. And then when he was, and she, having experienced that transformation and God's power and presence, if you've ever gone through any kind of deliverance, like having God's presence touch you and having something that's been with you, shame, fear, anxiety, your entire life, I've experienced this, something that's with, with you as long as you can remember, to have that gone in a moment where God's presence touches you, it's like awesome. That's what this woman has experienced. And she has now yoked herself to this man, all of her hopes and dreams for the future, because it's clear that he is of God. And this man, that all of her hopes and dreams for the future were tied to, they just laid him in the grave. And she's coming to anoint his body with oils. And she comes to the tomb, and his body is gone. And it's the final slap in the face, the final blow. She thinks they've stolen his body and hidden it somewhere else. And she's weeping in deep bitterness and pain. They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. When she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know it was him. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said, Sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you've laid him. I will take him away. Just give me his body. I'll, I'll take responsibility for it. Just tell me where you've laid him. I'll take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which means teacher. And the next verse is, he's having to tell her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet said to my father. She just runs to him and embraces him and grabs him and clings to him and will not let him go. I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Now he arose early on the first day of the week. He appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he cast seven demons. See, she went there exceedingly sorrowful. She left there exceedingly joyful. And I think Jesus, I mean, clearly he's telling her, like, I haven't ascended to my father yet, so don't cling to me. He comes to her prematurely, is the point. You guys see that? What in the heart of this man would cause him to appear prematurely to this woman? I think part of it is probably he couldn't bear the bitterness of soul that this, this person was enduring in that moment. And his heart was moved in compassion. I'll show up to her a little bit earlier. I'll appear to her first. Why? Because she's a picture of the kind of... Now, God's a great storyteller, right? He loved his disciples, of course. You know, John is John's the disciple whom he loved. Me too. <laughs> but there's something, there was something about Mary Magdalene that he showed up to her resurrected form first. I believe it's because there was a heart there to cling to him no matter what. And he couldn't, he, he, he just wanted to turn that sorrow into joy. 804, all right. We'll close with this. Jesus is looking for friends who are in love. John 12, 3 through 8. Mary took a pound, this is the same one 
sat at his feet and heard his word. Jesus is looking for friends who are loyal to him at all costs, who sit and hear his word, friends who share his sorrow and joy with. And Mary takes a pound of very costly spikenard, anoints the feet of Jesus, and wipes his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who would betray him, said, Why is this fragrant oil not sold and given to the poor? But Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but you will not always have me. Why did Mary do that? See, I think we see a little, a little Mary, we see kind of a journey that she's on. You know, this is Mary, sister of Martha, um, Lazarus's sister. Says Jesus always stayed at their house when he was in Bethany. Scripture actually says he loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. There was this unique camaraderie and affection that he had with his family. And Mary starts out her relationship with him, sitting at his feet and hearing his word, being the kind of friend that listened to him. When Mary shows up the next time you see her, it's at her brother's grave. She's weeping. And Jesus, again, enters into the place of that pain, shares in her sorrow, but then turns that sorrow into joy. And they fellowship together. And now Jesus is about to enter his own burial. Jesus is about to suffer. And over the course of this relationship, there's a perception that's grown. And the perception hasn't just come through time spent together. Because guess what? Judas spent time with Jesus too. But his heart wasn't loyal to him. He wasn't connected to him in sorrow and joy. And this man who's present, he's not actually able to perceive the worth of the one to whom he's in the midst of. But Mary sees it. Because she saw this rabbi, the one whom she treated like a teacher, she saw his resurrection power on display when, she, when he raised her brother from the dead. And I think Mary did the calculation <laughs> over the course of those few days after he raised her brother up. And, it, and she said, I was pretty sure he was a teacher and a prophet, and I was believing that he was Messiah, but I believe at, that, at the moment of the sign of resurrection, I think Mary made it, and this is just my opinion, but I think she made a critical connection. This is not just a teacher, this is not just a prophet, this is God in the flesh. And if you have God in the flesh in your midst, nothing is too precious. If you have God in the flesh in your midst, nothing is too precious for him. The, uh, the spike nard Commentators will tell you that this was probably something that was left to her by her parents. We assume her parents died, probably, because they're not mentioned in the story. They're at, at, the, at the very best, minimum, uh, at the very minimum, excuse me, uh, not present in the narrative. And it's likely that this was left for her by her parents and intended to give one day to her husband as a dowry. And dowry was a gift that was offered to the husband by the family so that this woman will be taken into to that person's household. So it represents all of her hopes for the future, for family, for relationship, and everything regarding her future hopes and dreams. She wastes in a moment of extravagant affections at the feet of Jesus. 
And when the disciples reproach her, Jesus defends her and says, she's done a good thing for me. And to interpret slightly prophetically, it says the fragrance of her affections filled the whole house. And elsewhere it says Jesus promises her, everywhere the gospel is preached, what you've done for me will be remembered. Why? Because it tells us what kind of friend Jesus is after. Extravagant lovers. To take us back to the first verse, Jesus says, this is how I'm going to love you, my friends. I'm going to lay down my life for you. Now I invite you, follow my example, take up your cross, and lay down your life for me. Let's pray. Jesus, I just ask for grace to know what it means to be a laid down lover of you. Take the precious oil of our lives, all of our hopes and dreams, and pour it out in extravagance upon you. Lord, you've done so much for us. We want our hearts to be filled with gratitude, sincere gratitude and affection. Lord, we want to enter into sorrow and joy with you. The sorrow of this broken, fallen world and the joy of your delivering, healing, saving power. The joy of the breakthrough, God, and the sorrow of the not yet. We want to share it all with you, Jesus. We want to be bowed low in the garden, travailing with you. Not dull and asleep and slumber. We don't want to be friends with the world. We want to be loyal to you, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. None but Jesus. Nothing too precious for Jesus. Let that be our sincere heart's cry. And if we're not there yet, God, we want to want to be God. We want to be good friends to you. We want to be good friends to you. And above all else, Lord, loyal, listening, sharing, and sorrow and joy, but above all else, make us lovers. Lay down lovers. And friends, you can share your life with, share your kingdom with. I love you very much, Jesus. We love you very much from this little room. And our expression may be weak. And multitudes may not ever know our name. But when you look at our lives, Lord, let us live for what counts the most to you. Give us love, Jesus. Love for you, love for others. Reprioritize our lives. If we're distracted by lesser things, reprioritize the place of love in our hearts for others and for you. We ask this in Jesus' name.